It is a great personal pleasure of mine to, uh, to welcome our next interviewer, David Carr. He, uh, if there is such a thing as required reading for American journalism, it is his column on, on Mondays in the New York Times. And it is a column that has the extraordinary, hey Francis, has the extraordinary, remarkable qualities of being both smart and ruthlessly honest about his own newspaper and, um, and the newspaper industry and the future of news, which makes it something that uh, is genuinely required reading. Some of you, I, the lucky ones in the room, may have seen a film, a documentary called Page One, which was done uh, last year, and it is about the New York Times. And the producers and director of the film chose the media department and, and specifically David to be the sort of the, the central focus of telling the story about the New York Times. Uh, and David <clears throat> was, was basically finding himself in the situation of being the voice of the traditional values, and the values, not the traditional necessarily way of doing business over years, but the traditional values and, and idealism of the New York Times in the context of uh, also uh, taking the you know, film crew to the place where he was busted for drugs some years ago. Uh, he is not your typical uh, journalistic New York Times type, which made him utterly persuasive for what he was expressing and what he stands for and what he believes. It is my great pleasure to invite you to uh, listen to what David has to say now with uh, our other guest. Thank you for that rather textured introduction, <laughs> Alex. I'm glad you referred to other parts of my resume people might not have been familiar with. Um, the, uh, Dana and I were talking beforehand, and I, it, it won't take but two minutes of this to realize that there's, there's one big throbbing brain up here, and then there's the normal guy who's asking the dumb questions. <laughs> 30 minutes in, we're going to pivot, and we're going to switch to you guys. I was half of what Dana and I just talked about, I was uh, completely riveted by, and the other half, I had no idea what she was talking about, was completely intrigued. And I'm, 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 I think it's swell that we, uh, we get to get up here, especially behind the day of programming that you've seen with, with, with Clay at lunch. I mean, that was just, I've seen a lot of Clay's shirky talks, but that thing, it was incantatory, it was like, part shaman, part rabbi, part, you know. <laughs> it's just like, holy buckets, I wish we had gone before. Um, uh, so I wanted to uh, go off a little bit of, of, of what Clay was talking about, which is, so we're in this sort of post-national media environment, and it's, it's uh, information in general is to jailbreak as has audiences and you've written about and talked a little bit about what what the, what what the public is and in a sort of distributed media age is there such a thing as public or is it just ad hoc networks 
boundedness. So we think of the American public bounded by the nation state. Oh, I'm not on, so I got I could, I could hear you very well. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately they probably were like, Mrr. So sorry, so I was saying that there's two different notions. One is the idea of uh, the public and one is the notion of a public. And the public often assumes that we have a sense of boundedness. The boundedness of the American public, right? Which is the consciousness of what it means to think about the boundaries of the nation state. The challenge of a public is a public actually is much more amorphous. And I think that this is a really relevant notion to, to deal with and grapple with in a mediated environment. Because we're actually dealing with multiple publics constantly coming together and constantly being challenged. Publics that can't actually be structured around defined boundaries. Publics that can't actually be understood even within shared identities. We have this complex overlay of identities and communities, connectedness, nationalities, languages, that I think we're seeing rise up in all sorts of interesting ways. Meanwhile, we're seeing that on top of a network technology that makes everything highly visible. So each individual public that gets formed up becomes visible to other publics, and we see contradictions coming together. What, what I, I was thinking about this this morning. I got on um, uh, the Acela train in Newark, which is, you know, the future is here, but we've got this high-speed train that actually doesn't go very fast. <laughs> um, so, but it, it sort of feels like it, and the wireless sort of works, and, but I was watching um, Occupy Wall Street in New York right. blow up this morning around the hashtag uh, of Twitter of OWS, and, and there was this moment of, of and it's kind of third leg of the stool that Clay was talking about was, it's not just, I was there, I saw Justin Bieber. I was there, this is what happened to me, this is what the cops did, and there was this m moment when it was like, I felt like I was very much there in real time, even though I was on a train heading uh, uh, north, so I was part of the public, but it seems like there's these like ad hoc networks or publics that assemble around an issue and then disperse, and then assemble anew. Although I think the beauty of Occupy is that it's actually not really around an issue. It should be around an issue, but it's not. It's actually like... How about that the, the rich people stole all our money? That so that's like the story that we like to overlay on it because we need to find an issue. But I actually think that you know, the best thing about the people showing up to Occupy is the first thing that they do when they show up is say, why the hell are you here? And they start a conversation. And it's that conversation where you start to see networks form. And likewise, what we're seeing online is this, this curiosity of like, what are these people? Why, what are they about? They have to have an issue. They have to have a goal. And we have a specific narrative of, of how protests should work, how public should work. And Occupy isn't following by any of them. But when you're actually in any of those communities, you see that people are actually having a conversation across lines and across communities that don't normally get to interact with one another. And they're actually coming together to try to figure out where their discontent comes from. There's a collective sense of discontent. There's a discomfort with the, the economic state. But there's not a real understanding of what's going on. But that's actually the beauty of it. And it's especially beautiful in a highly mediated environment. Because in theory, we could all do this through Facebook, through Twitter, through any online forum that we created. But there's something about physically showing up and asking somebody who you would never normally get to talk with 
Why did you come here? And it's that moment of, of issues being born out of a public as opposed to issues create, uh, be, you know, being the defining element of the public. Yeah, I, th I think you're onto something because um, um, I was down there last Thursday and you go walking up and, and so they got the drum circle, they got the generators, you know, uh, thrumming away to power the streaming media which, as I understand, worked a little better than, than it did here. Um, the, uh, um, you know, ad hoc, do it yourself. Uh, and uh, so all this crisscross, you, you know, and yeah, I did get a whiff of patchouli or two, but, uh, but one of the things that was there was a, a great big broadsheet newspaper, and it was gorgeous. I mean, it was this beautiful, like, had the wingspan of, of the olden days, and, and even at a, it's called the Occupied Wall Street Journal, um, but it, um, it did a great job of explaining something, and I thought, well, that's cute that they pulled that off, but then I watched the act of handing, the act of, 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 of handing something, and, and, and of course, I can't hand you a website. I think it gets at this sense of placeness that we're talking about. Placeness and thingness, yes, yes, sort of, sort of put on steroids and, and, and coalesced around social media, but in a specific place. And the reaction around the country is, hey, let's make our own place. Let's make our own place. And I think that's where the beauty of what we're seeing with social media is that it's not about a virtual reality that's divorced from the physicality. It's about integrating and, and amplifying and having that conversation. I think that your point about the Occupied Wall Street Journal is beautiful because it's about this moment of saying we're here to inform one another and we're here to be informed. We're here to have a dialogue and we're here to learn. And that kind of learning can happen at all different levels and we're seeing it around that movement happening in the very physical, the one-on-one. -on -one. They're sitting together and trying to make sense of it and we're seeing it amplified out into the digital as people are scratching their heads and making sense of it there. And we're seeing that digital come back into the physical in the form of those news articles that then circulate within there. So we're seeing a conversation that has scale, that has network, and we're in such the earliest stages of it. And who knows if it will go anywhere. But that moment of getting people to engage in really critical issues and try to make sense of the world in which they exist, a world that is both local and global, a world that is both physical and mediated, is actually one of the things that we need to create a healthy democracy. And so I think this is just a great opportunity to try to see a new form of democratic process, try to unfold meshing all of these things that we've known historically. Well, there's, there's, there's a, like a lot of what we're going to be talking about, there's a hybrid element of sort of offline um, and online, the real. And, the, and then there's also the element of how do I know what I know? <laughs> Is it because... Um, it's my, my daughter works for Vice, which is like an, you know, kind of a downtown media outfit. We, do, do, do I know stuff from her? Do I know stuff from Twitter? Do I know stuff from word of mouth? Is it our own blog at the New York Times? Is it, and everybody, I, I feel like I know what's going on there, but I feel like I don't really know how I know what I know. Does it matter? I think that it does in that we actually 
need to engage with things not as, as information that is given to us as a set of facts, but as a bunch of things that we grapple with. Right? We talk about this in terms of media literacy. We talk about this in terms of digital literacy. One, so I spend most of my time interacting with teenagers. So they, they're my, like my daily experience. And one of the things that is exciting to me in watching young people deal with social media and then deal with traditional narratives of media is that they're so aware within their own local purview that people are always hiding different content and they're making things sort of available and not making other things available. And they're learning to be critical within their very local community of any information that they see. And you're starting to see that happen also with how they consume broader narratives of media. And that's where I get very hopeful. Because I think that this moment of knowing is actually very challenging. I, I'm jet lagged as anything because I just flew in and I spent um, the last couple of days in Abu Dhabi with the World Economic Forum. And one of the things that was striking to me within the World Economic Forum, who we think of as such high, powerful political leaders, is how much they don't know. Right? And I think that would scare most people. So this idea that you, know, you have to actually know something is something that's really challenging today because I don't think you can actually know everything. I think you actually have to stitch together knowledge and that happens through conversation and community. And that, to me, is one of the hopeful things as I think about different people as they manage these technologies. How do they stitch together the networks so that they don't have to know everything, but they can tap into a broader set of knowledge and start to piece things together? I think that the, you, you have a cohort that's, I, I mean, it shares something with the 60s in that expertise is overrated. And the, they are willing to use a kit to assemble. Um, there, 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 it seems like more work, but what I notice, uh, especially say in my younger colleagues like Brian Stelter, or this, this act of now I'm producing media, now I'm consuming media. They're not discrete acts. There's this, there's this circle, like where I'm talking with Brian, I'm leaning over his cube and I get to I, I get upstairs and I just go, well, that, that little Dickens was twittering the whole time. I was, wait, now there's a blog post. Holy shit, he's on page one. And uh, I just was, there's, I, I, I feel like I, 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 as a digital adopter, I've been extremely aggressive, but my impulses are not what are baked into him. I mean, when, when, Bil, when uh, Bidlan got captured, I was like, Maybe we should make a, and I went like open up our blog and Stelter was in there like this long. And while he was talking to people, he was typing while he was Twitter. And so there's this, uh, there's this real time impulse. It's, it's funny because in the technology industry, we talk about the perpetual beta, right. which is a radical shift that happened in the tech industry as we moved from an era of design, develop, deploy, distribute right. to one of put it up and mess up with it, and if it breaks, fix it, and just keep going and constantly evolving. And I think that the news in many ways is, is also in that transition. There's a beauty of seeing, rather than packaging the perfect story and putting it out, it's got spelling mistakes, it's got real-time thoughts, it's got things that are gonna have to be transitioned. But there's this moment of using the, the news media, using social media, to actually start a conversation and realize that a story itself is never finished. 
And in many ways, this has always been the case. Stories have been ongoing. You would publish out the story today, you would add on to it tomorrow, et cetera, et cetera, except the relationship about time has changed. And what we see is that the story is evolving as people are learning it. And the New York Times has been phenomenal about this, you know, updated this time, updated this time, real time trying to sense make. And that's where the news media has this great role right now in being at the center of a conversation and creating a space for conversations to happen. I think that the other thing that's gone on is the, the New York Times that Alex uh, uh, um, worked at and kind, kind of same job, right? Um, yeah, which uh, Alex won a Pulitzer doing it. I've, I've won some prizes you've never heard of. Um, <laughs> I have some... I, I, I'm thinking the media was more important back then, but I don't think so. Um, I do think that what's being communicated in terms of there's less about authority and more about what constitutes verisimilitude and authenticity. We have this fight about, like when we, when you think about the pieces of media that have driven world events, they were not beautifully produced pieces of media. They were they were of the impulse that Clay was, I was there, I saw the thing, this is what happened. And so the, um, it, and, and what happens is the web turns into the self-cleaning oven where information is organized, reformulated, recast, until around this single image, which is riveting and great, a great waterfall occurs underneath of, as you say, sense making. Right, and I guess, for me, that's, that's that whole conversational bit. And so part of it is we're seeing a transition right now. It's a transition from understanding the world in terms of hierarchies and boundaries to one understanding the world in terms of networks. Now, the two continue to exist. The two have always existed. But I think the news media is in many ways in a transition itself in that same trajectory, which is that a lot of how it's been organized and a lot of how it engages is through a narrative of hierarchy. Um, it's in a narrative of packaging and creating boundaries. But we're also seeing this transition where it's now actually nodes within a network. I mean, take the bin Laden um, sort of example, which was sort of a beautiful moment, right? Here's a, a situation. Because he ended up dead or? No. <laughs> but it's a beautiful news moment. Um, here's this, this strange moment where Twitter theoretically, you know, unveils the fact that this has been Laden that's been killed. How does this actually play out? You know, Gilad Lotan at Social Flow sort of went back and looked through all of the, the Twitter data. And what he found was that lots of people were speculating in the first couple of hours, you know, was it bin Laden? Why were they having a Sunday night, you know, announcement? What was going on? Who, who is it? It has to be really important. And then one of Don, um, Donald Rumsfeld's staffers writes like, oh my gosh, I think bin Laden's just been killed. And of course, somebody from the New York Times immediately picks that up and is like, that's actually, going, we're going to make that connection. Right? We know this is Rumsfeld's staffer. The likelihood in which he is actually informed is, is tremendous. Picks this up and flows it. So this is still an hour and a half before Obama gets onto, onto TV. We plus, have plus they're adding, there was a guy tweeting, choppers in the air, guns fired. Although uh, this it, wasn't found until afterwards. Right, right, but but people did start pointing to him. Oh yeah, oh, y y you know. And he was like, "Oops, I guess I live tweeted the entire thing." Yes. Right, and that's I mean that's the 
weird element is that people are playing reporter roles without even realizing that they're reporting. People are playing you know, informant roles without realizing that they're informing. And that's where, the, the, again, what's so powerful about journalists who've been engaged with this is they're observing and they're trying to make sense of real-time data and try to figure out how do you filter through this massive amounts of information and figure out how to pull out the gems within the large swath of data. I'm interested in uh, sort of expertise in professional journalism, partly because that's how I get hamburgers. So there's that. But I also think that um, I used to watch uh, uh, our page one meeting go off. And I thought it was hilarious because you have, you have this circle of just incredibly intelligent women and men. But all these stories that they're talking about, they're up on the web above them, and they're moving in real time. And things are reordering, and things are, and, and, and I think, well, that's, that, that's, that's silly at a certain point to say, okay, now stop. And here are the seven most important stories in Western civilization, or sex, or whatever. And, but you know what? I've evolved, and I, this doesn't make me very modern. So much stuff is wishing by me every day that even, even if it's sort of arbitrary and whimsical, I like that somebody is. I still am, am getting that, 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 that codification of, okay, here are the six most important stories in, in, in the world today. Does that make me... Uh, no, I think curatorial roles are more important now than ever. The more information we have, the more we rely on people to curate the information that's available and tell us what's most important. The challenge in all of this is who do we actually trust? And what we're going to see is a wide distribution of people determining who they trust. The New York Times has done a phenomenal job through its brand, through its history, through its reputation of actually being a really powerful curator. And what we're seeing is a competition of who curates. Now this is also creates a new challenge for us, which is that the curatorial role also filters the world into that which we want to hear. So part of why we subscribe to the New York Times is that they curate it exactly like we want to hear. Or we turn to another news media and say, we want to hear this narrative only. And so one of the challenges in all of this is how do we simultaneously appreciate being narrowed and seeing what we want and deal with the fact that being exposed to things that we may not want to hear is actually part of creating a healthy civic society. Yeah, but that doesn't naturally happen. I mean, people are assembling into verticals of interest over and over where they're finding, if you want to find out about a certain thing that you have strong beliefs on on the web, you're going to find it. Oh. You're going, you, if, 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 if you think there were explosives in the front of those airplanes and you go on, uh, on, on September 11th, You'll find your truth out there, and you're not. And and uh, if you think those guys are complete nutters and 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 tearing at the the fabric, you you'll find that. And I, I worry that as people take this kit and assemble, there there that 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 on the cable side, on the web side, again and again, the people are going to assemble into a sort of non-federated verticals of interest where there is no civic common, where there isn't a place. You say it, there's a conversation occurring at Occupy, but it's of really like minds. Well, yes and no. So, I mean, 
So uh, the argument you're making in many ways is connected to Eli Pariser's work called the filter bubble. Right. And I think his his critique is is right on. And you know, one of the examples he lays out is well, that wait though, let's slow down on this because I didn't get it the first time around. Filter bubble. The filter filter bubble. And so I'll explain it. So one of the arguments he lays out is that if Google is returning the search queries that are most relevant to me, and I am a conspiracy theorist who believes that you know whatever variation of, of happened on 9/11, is is Google supposed to give me back information that reinforces my 9/11 conspiracy theory, or is it supposed to give me information back that challenges it? Right, and that's a big issue because what is most relevant to me in a networked era may be things that reinforce biases, prejudices, or misinformation. It also plays out that, to your point, if I want to go online and just consume things of my like mind, that I don't actually have to see a world that's anything different. Curiosity is always driven a only game. by algorithms, really. Driven I mean. only by algorithms, or frankly, curatorial power. Right? right. Like the, the news agencies have always curated to say this is what was interesting to you. I grew up in the era of the morning paper being the Democrat paper and the evening paper being the Republican paper, and you subscribe <laughs> to one or the other depending on your philosophical and political values. Right, so we have had. I'm stunned that you're old enough to have lived in a place that had two papers. But go ahead. <laughs> yeah, but this this element, which is the same thing, gets reproduced digitally. And how do we deal with that? Because part of it is that we're trying to create a broader narrative. I think the challenge and the onus is on all of us to break outside of our narrow worlds and to realize that we are being pigeonholed and find conversations. Occupy, to me, while it started out as being a lot of like minds in every way, one of the things that's interesting is, is that a lot of people are showing up there very curiously who don't necessarily show the values. Is it everybody? No, by no means yet um, at all. But the thing is, is that there's enough curiosity, and it's that curiosity that is creating the conversations about how people feel about it. Even this moment of saying, you know, I, I got into a cab last night, and this, the first thing out of the guy's mouth is like, you've been gone. Do you know about this Occupy thing? <laughs> like, um, yes. And he wanted to know my opinion on it. We have this crazy conversation from totally different cultural perspectives. Right, so that moment of creating a conversation and being able to create a conversation publicly is what we really need to stand for, which we need to create, which is very different than just being informed. It's a difference between just being able to consume information or even just consume and produce and converse. And the key to the public that you're imagining is very much about that conversation. And, and I, I got to say, when things started up down there, I thought, this is discreet. This is contained. I'm not going to end up, this, this is really not part of my world. And like you, I've ended up in conversations where I've had to have a take, like, uh, um, you know, you know, some guy says to me, well, that's nothing but communists down there. I say, no. You know, I was there, and I think they would like capitalism to actually work, which is, means when you screw up, you pay, and I don't. Um, you know, that's what I'm uh, taking from it. The ability to sort of, this has been floating for three years, and we have Gretchen Morganson in our paper every Sunday talking about what went down. We did a ton of work, the Wall Street Journal did amazing work uh, on, on, on what, what sort of drove the bubble, what created this absence of consequence over and over, but until this conversation uh, began. And so 
I, what, 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 I, what, what I think about is you still need people to make phone calls, so you need, and, and, and you still need expertise. I mean, if you go on Twitter, every four seconds, there's a tweet that carries information from our paper, and it becomes a maypole. Uh, so I do think that there's value in it. But again and again, you see information performing a, 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 a jailbreak in a way where we're sometimes catching up. I think WikiLeaks, which Clay spent a lot of time talking about, um, you know, I, I loved what Clay said, but I thought he was missing one thing in terms of it, it's, it's, it's like, I think he's right in terms of we had an involving, complicated relationship. We're in business with you. No, you're a source of ours. No, we're, we're publishing your stuff, but we're breaking your nose in a front page profile. We're, you know, it was a, something to behold. But what I, but, but what I think is missing from that is what drove WikiLeaks was not ubiquity of information. They did take and plop a bunch of stuff out there. Nothing happened. It was scarcity of information. Engage the competitive dynamics of professional media organizations by giving it a three to five. They'll redact the names. They'll report out the stories. And I thought that part of the learning curve of WikiLeaks was, was amazing. I mean, tactically, they changed, right? So WikiLeaks, in many ways, had three stages. And Clay talked about two of them. But the first stage is that they put out information on uh, uh, online fora, and no one noticed. Right? They put out tons of information regarding Afghanistan, and no one noticed. The second thing they did was they tried to actually um, editorialize and create a story. And collateral murder, in many ways, was an editorialized version of what they thought they needed to get out there about what's happening. You're talking about an edited videotape of a helicopter attack. Correct. Yeah. Um, with, which, which had two things. One was um, they put in uh, subtitles so you could actually read it. They shortened the actual video, and they actually labeled it collateral murder, which was the editorialization process. And that sparked all sorts of con controversy, because what were they doing? You know, was this really a source, et cetera, et cetera. And then of the third one is, in many ways, the scarcity, which is they, they started out by saying, we're going to restrict access to these cables and negotiate it with partners. One of the things, you know, from my perspective of what WikiLeaks is in many ways doing is that it's trying to challenge the news media and saying, your responsibility, dear news media, is to be a check and balance to power. And you, in many ways, have failed. And so we want to be a check and balance to you so that you can be a better check and balance to power. And this raises a huge question about what does it mean for the news media to be a check and balance to power in a highly networked age in which it is, in many ways, one of the relevant actors of that system of power? I think that um, a couple of weeks ago, I was in uh, uh, London and um, Vaughn Smith, who runs the Frontline Club there, uh, just on a Saturday morning said, would you like up to come up to the English countryside and have lunch with Julian Assange? It's, it's not really working. I'm like, hell yes, I would like to. And I get up there, and we're like, there's this, it's the nice English countryside. It's the manor. It's the, everything is lovely. And we're like having, uh, lunch and there's nine or ten people gathered around. I'm next to uh, 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 Julian, who was fun and nice in a certain kind of way, and uh, um, in a sort of spooky, spectral, cool way, <laughs> like what is really up to But anyways, um, he's just, 
it, we're just chatting along. You said, well, the primary uh, sort of skills in a mainstream journalist is the ability to uh, uh, censor himself and to lie on behalf of the powers that be. And I was like, I, I think I just choked on my trout salad a bit. <laughs> uh, and I thought to myself, he's not just saying this to provoke. He really believes it. And so we, and uh, in, in, in certain ways, he did great business with us. But then we ended up pounding on him. He ended up pounding on us. But what I wonder about is what makes, what made WikiLeaks powerful is this is a demand scarcity issue again is what you're always short of in the investigative world is the whistleblower. Mm -hmm. And in this case, the whistleblower is naked <coughs> in a cell under military control and so deep you'd need a miner's helmet to find him, right? And so that was the consequence. Julian Assange is in the English countryside and will not go to Sweden to confront uh, questions that, that he uh, engaged in inappropriate behavior with two women there because he believes he's going to end up as an extraditable and he's going to become a beanie baby. It was clear to me in talking to him that he is afraid. <coughs> and um, so I think to myself, maybe this isn't a replicable sort of moment. I think, I mean, and meanwhile in the United States, we're on a witch hunt to go after any hacker who has any affiliation, social or technical, with the organization, that, the loose organization that is WikiLeaks. I mean, even just watching the news come out this week about Jacob Applebaum's um, interrogation and having to Google having to turn over all of his uh, Without a conversations. Without no, no warrant. No warrant. So this becomes this really interesting challenge about how we continue to lock down dissidents who try to challenge authority. Now, my hope, and my hope in terms of the history of this country, has been that we continue to thrive, even though as dissidents challenge and we come back and say, maybe we don't want to continue down these witch hunts over and over again. But the thing is, is that these witch hunts are a way in which traditional forms of power try to very much oppress subversive elements and try to oppress any voice that is challenging to authority. Do I think that this will continue to pop up? Yes. I don't think that whistleblowers are, are dead. I think that we will see them come up in new form. And it's about people feeling empowered and believing that it is more important that the truth get out than the consequences that they personally face. And I think that that's about a specific kind of person. Bradley Manning, in many ways, is, is an accident of history. Um, in many ways, he was not an expected whistleblower. He, he, we were retroactively calling him a whistleblower, but in many ways, he wasn't. He was a very, by all accounts, a very confused young man. Um, but the thing is, is there's this moment where I think whenever we see power abusing itself, I think we will see people trying to challenge it. And I think we're seeing that globally in really interesting ways. And I think new technologies will continue to pop up to try to give people different avenues of doing this. But I think that we will constantly see this pressure. So I, I heard a brilliant talk recently by Manuel Castells. And he said that one of the beautiful things historically is that new technologies have always challenged different kinds of power in really clear ways. It destabilizes. And the first thing that, these, that you know, any powerful system tries to do is restabilize, restabilize power. But what's at stake right now is that the challenges to power are happening so fast at this point 
that we, in the new technologies to do so, that we're seeing an increasing destabilization. And this is actually what raises the question of what does stability of power mean in this technologically mediated environment? And I think that's where all of these issues turn into a gnarly hairball um, that are, it's hard to untangle, but I think that it's about the, the non-stability as opposed to a stability in saying, we need to have a stable force and we'll have to have whistleblowers. I think we're going to see it reform and, and reconstitute itself over and over again. I'm going to steal the conceptual elegance of gnarly hairball and not give you credit. <laughs> um, the, uh, we've reached that portion of the program where far more articulate and smart people will begin asking the questions. That would be you guys. One of the things while you guys rapidly assemble at the microphones because you're dying to find out what Dana thinks about. I was listening to Julian had, you know, his, uh, a couple of his colleagues up there and they're all their sort of dark ops and theories and about why the chopper landed and what's happening with their email and line of sight conversations. And I'm thinking, this is, this is really kind of silly. But then they sort of, then they started corresponding with me after I visited. And I thought, I don't, if, if you are catching focus, I don't really want it. I don't want you sending my Gmail account. And it gave me just a little bit of a feeling about, I was kind of chuckling at them. And then I realized, well, you know, they're being watched. And now here I am corresponding with them. And uh, the, the hair on the back of my neck stood up uh, j just a bit. Go ahead, sir, please. Thank you very much. Uh, my name is David Scott. I'm a Neiman Fellow here at Harvard this year. Um, first of all, David, uh, thank you for the reporting that you do. Uh, it's, um, it's rare to find somebody who actually analyzes the media critically who works for a media organization. So your courage in doing that is appreciated by everybody here, I'm sure. Um, my question is uh, surrounding the platforms that, that we use to tell these stories. Um, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Google, these are private companies that have their own profit motive and, you know, in a way we become so myopic about them. Uh, television stations are regulated, radio stations are regulated, and I'm just wondering at what point do these platforms get their feet held to the fire or do they even need to be? Um, is this something that we should be concerned about? No, I think, I think your question is, is really critical. And I think that part of what challenges all of this is who's doing the regulating and under what context, right? Because in many ways, our narrative of regulation, as Clay was pointing out, is about aboundedness of nation states. It's about a certain kind of structure. But what does it mean to regulate in a global way? And in some ways, I don't think we're even prepared to have that conversation meaningfully yet. I think that there's no doubt that we've reached a point where we're not actually um, having a public space that is without a commercial interest, right? The digital environment is no longer the Usenet days of distributed networks. Should it be? Should we build, be building those systems? Certainly. But that's not where we're at right now. And I think that there's a level of accountability in different ways that becomes really critical. The way I go back to it is I come back to Larry Lessig. And I think Larry Lessig is an extremely important way of thinking about it and reminding that there are four uh, ways in which any system is regulated that become very powerful. One is the market. Two is the law. Three is social norms. And four is technology, architecture, or code. Right. And I think that as we think about regula regulation and the role of it, I think we should be using regulation in that 
for mode, so not just automatically jumping to the law as the answer, because the law, even when it does regulate, often messes up and it often doesn't give us what we want. We've certainly been seeing that with traditional media narratives. But how do we actually make certain that we have an informed citizenry so that social norms are part of the regulatory force? And that's actually where I think the media can play a critical role. The more the media sheds light on what goes on on these systems and what happens, the more social norms can serve as a regulatory force and an empowered regulatory force. Another is different questions of market power, because as these things are part of a, uh, an ecosystem, it's not just about the one particular company, but it's about the relationships between those companies that become pretty powerful. And finally, actually, code and technology become really important, which is building alternatives and challenging the kinds of ecosystems that we have through technology. All of those come together and serve as a beautiful ecosystem for regulation that is not just about pinpointing to law. Yeah, but I think there's... That, 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 that in, in sort of Lessig's tree, the most persistent, the most immediate is the commercial, the fact they work in a commercial environment. So before Google did Google Plus, they did Google, what? what? Buzz. Buzz. And it's like, oh, the five people I email, ah! it's like, what are you doing? And immediately there was this crazy reflex from <coughs> Facebook redoes you know, throws a lot of your rights uh, under a bus and people uh, 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 respond. The fact that they work in a commercial cultural environment uh, and they depend on the trust of uh, their, their, their audience does put a certain governor. Yes? No? I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm not challenging your premise. I think that there are major problems in what's happening in these technological systems. There's huge problems with regard to privacy. There's huge uh, problems with regard to the way in which commercial interests actually control data. All of this is there. The challenge is, is that a, a, a legislative framework, it's which legislative framework? The American one? The Chinese one? The Egyptian one? Whose legislative framework works? And I think that certainly because we're talking about an American company in many of these cases and we're talking about American servers, we often go to that. But we also have tons of unintended consequences of trying to regulate these spaces. And that's where I'm not convinced that jumping to legal regulation is always the best bet. In many ways, I really wish that the news media would actually better understand how these technologies work and make certain that they hold these companies, you know, feet to the flame. Because I will say the media's coverage about some of these privacy issues has actually done wonders for challenging it and making people rise up and, and even making regulators pay attention. So if you look at regulators in Europe, regulators in Canada, they're paying attention in part because of the way that the media has actually given information to constituents who are challenging them. So that's why it's a part of an ecosystem rather than jumping immediately to law. I think that the Wall Street Journal did some excellent it's work. beautiful. Yeah, right until I felt their hands up my skirt using some of the same technology. I was really impressed by it. <laughs> um, but great work it's on behalf beautiful. of the reporters. Beautiful. But a, a, bit of, a bit of sort of aggression on the business side in terms of, go ahead, sir. Yes, uh, Carl Hackerinen. Um, Danny, you talked about talking with teenagers a lot on matters of skepticism and how they relate to uh, you know, what, are, what are the sources of authority for them uh, largely uh, through social media and how, that, how all that gets filtered. We've also heard a lot of angst among old school 
journalists who are saying, where are the authorities, who are the um, uh, call them gatekeepers, call them editorial boards, curators, whatever uh, the term is. Um, so I've got teenage grandkids. And there, there are some fracture lines, uh, uh, personally be less between me and the grandkids than uh, their parents, our, you know, our children, because those folks in the 40 to 60 bracket are often really bewildered by what the hell's going on and having to learn from their kids about about life, about communications, and you know, to the topic of the day about media and, and politics. That you know, more of this is is bubbling up through the new technology, with the result that many of the again that the 40 to 60 bracket are are uh, scares the yogurt out of them. But we want to we want to land in a question here. Okay. So, so the so the question is, can you um, can you describe the the ways in which those um, generations can and do react uh, or interact at their best? Thanks, When my mother came to the United States as a teenager, um, she came home with her American history book, um, and my grandfather took up took one look at this. Um, being British, she threw it out. He decided it was all wrong. Everything in it was wrong, and she should not be taught any of this. And of course, this is sort of this beautiful moment of the idea that there are facts, and there were British facts, and there were American facts. And clearly, the British facts were more important than the American facts, regardless of which country she was in. One of the challenges of growing up in a highly mediated environment is that you actually need to start resolving the idea that some things don't have one set of facts. One of the beauties to me about Wikipedia, if you actually look at the, um, uh, the discussion on the uh, American Revolution article in Wikipedia, it's basically a battleground between the British and the American, right? Trying to say whether the, they could understand these dissidents as terrorists or whether you know, they were revolutionaries and all of these different things. You, there's a moment where you can use these technologies and these discussions to actually strike and open up the idea that there is not simply one narrative of history. Of course, historians have been doing this for a long time, but it's not how we teach history in an American context. Within the generational dynamics, I think that there's no doubt that a lot of traditionally trained 40 to 60 year olds who've been taught, spoon fed even, that there are facts and there, is, you know, there are good guys and there are bad guys and everything is black and white are really struggling. You know, it's funny to be in an academic context where we, we, criti we critically analyze everything just as a daily activity and we have to realize that that is not necessarily the norm. What's powerful is, is that in some ways young people are growing up with a norm that we understand in academia much greater, which is actually how to critically interrogate things. Now they don't inherently get that. And they're not necessarily always trained in it. And they're often rebelling against their teachers, who are also in the 40 to 60 bracket, about what's going on here. That's actually why I think, especially as scholars and intellectuals who care deeply about public life, we need to take all of the critical thinking and the ways that we actually operate as scholars and figure out how to make certain that critical thinking gets embedded into a broader sense of conversation, especially for the 40 to 60 year olds who are dealing with the coping skills based on transitioning from a value system that it is in some ways being undermined by technology. Um, I just point of order, I want to say the British will always 
win the historical argument because of the authority conveyed by the accents. You just, you just, it's, it's going to sound like a better fact. It just is. Um, go ahead, sir. George Mokre, independent scholar, and glad that now I'm 61, so I'm over there. Um, I would like you to talk a little bit about the conversations and the qualities of the different conversations. You mentioned civics as opposed to politics. A couple of weeks ago, Lawrence Lessig had a conference here on a constitutional convention. And it ended up with, what should we do to carry this forward? The idea was to have mock constitutional conventions in a variety of different places. And, and it seemed to me, coming away from that meeting, what they were talking about was civics, reintroducing a civic conversation with people, talk, and then Occupy Wall Street happened and occupied Boston, occupied Philly, so forth and so on. And what I've seen there is that people not claiming leadership, I can only talk for myself, they would say. Time after time after time as they're being interviewed in New York or in Boston or in Washington. And I've seen also in Boston counter demonstrators. Right, and but, from but we, we, we want to head toward a question. Well, so. th th I want you to talk about the different qualities of these kinds of conversations from flame wars to now where people are saying co to counter demonstrators, well, tell me, I'm here. Talk to me about what your issues are with what I'm doing here in Occupy Boston. And to this kind of different welcoming conversation that's happening, a civic conversation that's happening, which is not a flame war, and which is not political, it's civic, and there's something different there. Right, I think, I think one of the challenges is, especially when we think of things being mediated, we're used to only seeing the quote-unquote highest quality conversations. One of the things that we see because of technology is technology makes visible that whole range of conversation, right? All of a sudden, we can look into the really mundane, the absolutely inaccurate, the how on earth is this tangentially relevant, all the way up to the really serious critical analyses. And I think that that's actually both terrifying because you realize that the world doesn't all think like you, um, and that, you know, even if you hold yourself up to having esteemed conversation that you might critically say others do not, the idea that you have this moment of seeing the wide array of different perspectives. Do, is there a wide array? Certainly. Has there always been? Definitely. It's just that now a lot of those conversations are much more visible. And that's about the, the value of the visibility issues. And I think that we should recognize that what technology does more than anything else is make visible the good, bad, and ugly of everyday life. I want to, I, I feel the weight of time swinging yep. feet, and I want to get to both these guys. We're getting toward the end, so go ahead, please. Sure. My name is Melissa Galvez. I'm a student here. And I, actually, my question sort of does piggyback a lot on what you guys have been talking about in the last two questions, and so maybe the answer will be short. Um, but it, it seems when, we when you mentioned the filter bubble and um, the sort of silos where people live in terms of their um, beliefs, that you seem very optimistic about the idea that this conversational habit that's happening in Occupy Wall Street really will <laughs> spread and, and in touch on other communities that are not a part of it, especially people who can't get there. So I sort of wonder what, what makes you very optimistic that this real debate and conversation and everything that we do here in academia and that's happening in Occupy Wall Street really will spread and touch the places in this country or the communities that 
aren't a part of it or are siloed by their own choices. Right. I guess for me, what's exciting is not necessarily that it will that it will spread as in the Occupy is a contained object that will spread, but that even the fact that it exists has been sparking conversations. And we often have certain events that spark conversations, right? Elections are always a classic one in the United States where people talk not necessarily about the issues, but they at least talk at some level, even if they're talking about the reasons why they're ignoring the actual event. In the same sense, it's that Occupy is such a curiosity, it's such a weird thing, people don't understand what it is, that that alone is what the sparking function is of conversation. Will everybody reach some sort of consensus and make meaning out of it? No, but it has become a water cooler effect. And personally, as far as civic engagement, I'd rather have the curiosity of what the heck is this Occupy thing be the, be the water cooler effect than the latest American Idol. Although that's pretty compelling. Just one, one last bit. Thank you. Uh, just a very quick one. I'm Montague Kern from Rutgers University, a former fellow here. Jersey proud. Thank you. Jersey <laughs> proud. Uh, yes, I have uh, two, one question for each of you, both very quick. Uh, first one relates to the filter bubble, bubble which you brought up. Um, and uh, I have just read the filter bubble and have assigned it in class. And one thing I've noticed about it is that Emmett Parser talks about, uh, you talk about it, commercial interest being there, but your term was that is what we would expect to find in a network environment, uh, you know, that they're commercial interest. Uh, he talks about it a bit differently. He says that in fact it's advertising which is driving Google uh, to make the person who lives in New Jersey uh, get a totally different take on uh, an issue as compared with the person who lives in Yugoslavia. And that oh, just a second. These would, guys are going to taser me if I go on too long. Okay, so, that was my question. Okay, if you would speak, speak into the mic, too. Okay. My, my question for David uh, is uh, around the area of documentary film and film itself, because you were just in one. And I wonder what your feeling is about documentary film as and film as sparking conversations. I find that a very interesting issue. I, I think that leaving aside um, my role as the tallest midget in a movie about newspapers, the, the ability of documentaries because of the ubiquity and speed and uh, uh, of, of the technology to come in in real time like books used to and just land with such force, I think is breathtaking. And a lot of the best narrative long form journalism I'm seeing is the step back in the form of a documentary that's coming out 18 months after the event. I mean, it's just wild to watch. So, I agree with you. I hope to invite you to a symposium on documentary. No, sorry. Um, the, uh, we're going to wrap it up with that. I want to just point a personal privilege to say, I did not look at the Twitter screen, screen once. <laughs> what is the most interesting news? It's news about you. And the, the minute that I'd look up there, it would be something about my zipper being down or the fact <laughs> that I'm spitting when I'm talking and I'd be paralyzed. So, so I made it through without looking. Did you look it up? You made me just look. Okay, but you didn't otherwise. That's, that's the thing about the modern presentation is with the real time. A Twitter feed must not look. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you. Okay. So you're most.